0: In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his teaching on the book of First Kings, chapters 15 and 16.
1: Archaeologists have unearthed evidence that Samaria was built by very skillful craftsmen, And it, it dominated the north-south uh, trade routes. It also was apparently almost impregnable as a stronghold against alien attacks because of this elevated position. And so, uh, so Omri is probably the strongest ruler of the northern kingdom up to this time. Well, let's move on. Now, verse, uh, okay, verse 26. And he walked in, the way, in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin, to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. You know, it's amazing how their material wealth and prosperity and their military successes blind them to the predicament spiritually. And we got to think very hard about that in terms of our own country. We're prosperous, we're strong, we're powerful. But where are we spiritually? That's a scary issue to really come to terms with. Now the rest of the Acts of Omri, did, which he did, and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the King of Israel? And Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, reigned in his stead. Now Ahab and his exploits are going to occupy us for a number of chapters forthcoming. In the thirty and eighth year of Asa the king of Judah began Ahab the son of Omri to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. Each one of these guys sets a new record. How how angry can you get God? I don't know, let, you, let me show you. You know, came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat that he took to wife Jezebel. The daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, and he went and served, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. This is uh, going to be a very, very major element in the history of Israel. Worse than all before, as a military and political leader, he gets pretty good marks. He is effective in defeating Israel's Syrian enemies. He joined in a coalition army that halted the invasion of the great Assyrian force under Shalmaneser III, and he maintained the borders of his own land. The Assyrian records tell us that Ahab was able to contribute 2,000 chariots, those are like tanks in the ancient warfare, to a coalition army, as well as some 10,000 foot soldiers. Economically, they also prospered. The Phoenician alliance, because he married uh, uh, Jezebel and so forth, uh, meant that the sea trade routes were open to landlocked Israel. And the the great ivory house that... uh, He had built for himself. 1 Kings 22, we'll talk about that, testifies to his posterity. But at the same time, this alliance with the Phoenicians and marrying uh, Jezebel brings she was a, she wasn't just a Baal worshiper. She was committed to get everybody to worship Baal. And she really is extremely aggressive, extremely powerful in her own right. So this is, uh, she's not satisfied with coexistence. She She wants Baal worship to replace any worship of of uh, Jehovah, or Yahweh, or Jehovah, or however you want to pronounce it. And she not only slaughtered the uh, Hebrew prophets, that'll be occurring in chapter 18, she also imported hundreds of prophets of Baal to establish worship centers for this pagan deity. And so it's, a, it's going to be, it is such a major event that Jesus himself makes reference to it in the letter to Thyatira, in Revelation chapter 2. And you won't understand that letter unless you really understand what's going to transpire later with Jezebel and uh, Ahab and Naboth's vineyard and all that business, which we'll get to, of course. But uh, so Jezebel and King Ahab go about imposing this entire system on Israel and aggressively seek to blot out any worship of Jehovah. So you can you can tell what's coming here, huh? And so, and Ahab made a grove. That's these uh, these these pagan. Um, licentious worship regions. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. That's a bunch. As we gone through each one of these, it gets worse and worse and worse. Ahab is, setting, is, 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 is going to new ground here. In his days did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. He laid a foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son Sigub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now that needs a little interpretation here. Hail the Bethleite went to build Jericho, but to understand that you have to remember that Jericho it had been predicted that it, that the refortification of Jericho was specifically forbidden by Joshua. After God supernaturally destroyed it in Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. So, though, although the city had been occupied in Joshua's day, Hiles' reconstruction seems to have been the first serious attempt to restore it to its original condition. So, Joshua's prophecy is fulfilled when Hiles' two sons get buried in the process. What you've got to understand here is that's what it's saying when. Uh, he laid the foundation thereof in Byram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son Zichah. In other words, it cost him his two sons to do this. Now you wonder why is it is is it inserted here? Yeah, I, I think the it, it, it seems as if the writer, the chronicler here, is is um, uh, inserting this here to 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 as an overtone of what's going to happen to Ahab. Ahab should be learning from these issues, and of course he doesn't. We're going to talk a lot about the rain. Of King Ahab and Jezebel, in the in the next two sessions, but uh, it might be a good point at this point just to uh, summarize the southern the the the, uh, the uh, southern kingdom, if I may. The dreary portrait of the northern kingdom uh, under its apostate kings is not nearly as bad. Uh, is is I mean, excuse me. Uh, the northern king is you would think that it. It's a lot worse than the Southern Kingdom. You'd think that it would serve as an example. The Southern Kingdom does better, but not by much. Politically, the Southern Kingdom is going to have its ups and downs, uh, as as conflicts with Israel, uh, with it, the Northern Kingdom, uh, Israel, and Egypt, and other surrounding states bring sometimes victories, some defeats. But but spiritually, the Southern Kingdom, the House of Judah, is blessed with several godly kings. But she also had apostate kings that followed Solomon's example and permitted pagan worship in the land. Strangely enough, one of them is a queen. We're going to count later on. We're going to count Queen Athaliah about 841 BC. She she's going to introduce the cult of Baal worship in Judah because guess who her mother was? Jezebel. You got it. But there is a succession of God-approved kings, Joash to Jotham, that uh, kept the extension of evil tendencies to a minimum. There were great revivals under kings Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash that helped purify the land. A lot of local autonomy was retained. But the piety of the king did not guarantee the holiness of his people. Now Hezekiah is going to come along. He's one of the most godly kings. He'll guide Judah during a critical time of Israel's uh, destruction in the north. He will institute drastic reforms to correct the idolatry of his father Ahaz. Now, not Ahab, Ahaz, we're talking about here, and uh, thoroughly cleansed the land, and he will have the benefit of two great prophets, Isaiah and Micah, during his his reign. But his son Manasseh, who will rule for fifty-five years, is is the worst of of the Jew, of, of the worst king of the line in Judah, and. Uh, he supported pagan worship. He, he went around and, and uh, tried to it. every copy of the Torah he could find, everything that had to do with Mosaic Judaism that he could find. And apparently it's at that time that the Levites take the Ark of the Covenant out of the area for its own protection. He uh, he recognized the sacrifice of children to the Ammonite god Molech, and he killed anyone that protested. We Also, tradition tells us that he was the one that uh, sawed Isaiah in half with a wooden saw. But after him comes Josiah, and that's, there's a great revival under Josiah, and he had the benefit of Habakkuk as a, as a prophet, and also uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are starting to show up at this stage, and he is a great religious and moral uh, 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 revival. He's the one that asked the Levites to return the Ark to, to the Holy of Holies. There's no evidence that they did, but that we, he gets killed when he goes against Egypt going after the Ark, apparently. But uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, uh, uh graphically describe, uh, uh, the way of life for God's people, uh, in, in, and the judgment that has to come. But, uh, it gets worse, and so it, it, judgment does come, as he, as, as predicted, in a series of deportations, the surviving, the surviving kingdom was wrenched from the land, and the temple and the holy city were raised. and after this agonizing chastisement where God's people are then in the captivity of Babylon, that they did come to repent in the foreign land. And they were purified of idolatry. And finally a remnant returns from Babylon to restart uh, the Jewish homeland and to await the Messiah. It's interesting that the Babylonian captivity seems to have pretty well purged the Jewish uh, leaning towards idolatry. It's a huge problem up until the Babylonian captivity. When they come back from Babylon, they got other problems. But idolatry, uh, they, it's, they seem to have been cured. It's too bad that the southern kingdom wasn't paying more attention to what was going on in the northern kingdom and, and learning their lessons. Because the northern kingdom is just a tragic chronicle. We, we've only gone through part of it. In the coming sessions, we'll be going through the other kings, and it gets it gets pretty messy. Um, we are uh, almost through the book of First Kings. It hasn't focused entirely on the northern kingdom, but one of the things, both kingdoms after um, Rehoboam uh, took the kingdom from Sol- Solomon passed away, we all know there's been a civil war, and the uh, and uh, they split the northern kingdom under Jeroboam, and the southern kingdom under Rehoboam, and the uh, the northern kingdom went from bad to worse. It's an unbroken chain of losers. Bad news, guys. Now if you write the report cards from a secular point of view, several of them were outstanding leaders, very prosperous, very successful militarily, very successful economically, and uh, that's masked, if you will, in the scripture because the scripture is focusing on its spiritual condition, and it goes from bad to worse, and because it goes so bad, it ultimately uh, becomes disastrous in all the other areas too, but the root problem there is idolatry. So we have this political separation on the one hand, but the theme that goes all the way through both kingdoms is this issue of idolatry. And uh, the northern kingdom goes from bad to worse, and as finally in 722 B.C. gets obliterated from history by the Assyrians. You would think the southern kingdom, now they also had a string of bad kings, they did have a few, uh, uh, four to six, depending on how you want to count a few, but they were considered good kings. Uh, they had a few exceptions, in other words, but in general, it went from bad to worse, and it also went into captivity to return because of God's promise to David now so I want to just pause in our verse by verse journey through first kings to stop and try to summarize what's going on you, you think I could leave this to the end, but by doing it sort of in the middle you'll get a you'll get a chance to sort of see it unfold by understanding where we're going we're going to take two topics here, sort of a a little uh, commentary. The first is the political separation that took place, and some of the myths that have surrounded this strange era, and then the second thing, the, the cost of idolatry. There is a very popular myth, uh, uh, the, the so-called lost ten tribes, and the concept behind this is that uh, the uh, these uh, uh, that the northern tribes that uh, go into captivity in Assyria. Ultimately, meander off to Europe and wherever and are presently all over the world. The lost ten tribes, where are they? Kind of thing. And, uh, this, it, there's also the basis for a, a particular variation of all of that that's sometimes called British Israelism. I won't go into any of that except to point out these myths, very popular in literature, are not biblical. They, they derive from a misunderstanding of the text. And I thought it, it would be useful to take a look at this. Now, The first point is the people in the northern kingdom. Jeroboam takes the northern kingdom, and in order to maintain his control, among other things, he invents his own religion, and they go into idolatry. People who were in the northern kingdom, in each of the tribes, that wanted to be faithful to the temple worship in Jerusalem, voted with their feet. They picked up and moved. Substantial numbers from the northern tribes identified themselves with the house of David, And 1 Kings 12 and 2 Chronicles 11, this is emphasized. The Levites explicitly migrated south. You'd expect that. They were priests. They're not going to stay where that priesthood is politically incorrect. They're going to go where they're, where they can practice what they've been called to do. Down to the, to Jerusalem, the temple, and in other words, the southern kingdom. And that's expressly laid out in 2 Chronicles 11. If you don't put any other notes in there, put that chapter in and study it carefully. See, the only place where God Uh, considered acceptable to worship was in the temple on Mount Moriah. That's in the the Torah. Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 16, and emphasized by Isaiah and Isaiah 18. Now, by the way, many um, in the south repudiated temple worship, and they went um, to north, and, and those in the north went... In other words, don't confuse the geography that's labeled by tribes with the people of those tribes, because there's some commingling. The faithful move south, the idolaters move north. And we need to understand that. Even later on, under Asa, a large company um, migrated south from the north. And so you got members of all 12 tribes in the south. In fact, the important ones, the faithful ones, to the Torah and the worship. Now, after the capital of the northern kingdom finally falls to the Assyrian, we find some other things. King Hezekiah, this comes much later, Calls all Israel to come to worship in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. It's in Second Chronicles 30 now. many chapters later. 80 years later, King Josiah uh, issues a call and uh, an offering for the temple was received. It says from the scripture from Manasseh and Ephraim and all the remnant of Israel. And so you've got faithful from the entire nation uh, representing themselves before the temple. And Second Chronicles 11 eventually all 12 tribes are represented in the south. In fact, God even addresses the 12 tribes in the south. He says, Speak unto Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the king of Judah, and all Israel, in Judah and Benjamin. Israel being the north, but that are resident in the south. So, now, when the Assyrians do take over, they have a very, very notorious policy. When they took a captive group, they would take portions of them and transplant them to avoid rebellion. They'd also take captives from other areas and bring them there. And they did that. So they, the Israelite captives were mixed with Persians and others that they had conquered. And, uh, and uh, strangers from far off lands were resettled in Samaria, or not just the town, but Samaria is idiomatic for, it's like saying Washington See, idiomatic for America. Samaria for the Northern Kingdom, is the capital of the Northern Kingdom. Now the result of that was Com- that commingling was a, the offspring were considered half Jew. They were quasi-Jewish populations. They were known as what? Samaritans because of their capital basis. That's where it comes from. It's from Samaria being the capital of the Northern Kingdom. And that's uh, you find allusions to that in John chapter 4, when the woman with the well and so forth, and of course, 2 Kings 17. But by the way, when you speak of being deported, less than 5% were deported. According to uh, archaeological discoveries about... Less than 30,000, 27,290 people and about 50 chariots are what they deported. So it's not a a big deal in that sense. Now, that's 722 B.C. About a a little over a century later, the Babylonians rise to power and conquer the Assyrians. So they inherit the captives of the Assyrians along with their own captives. And so when the northern captivity went into captivity, even then all 12 tribes are represented in the geography of the south. But 586, we have the the Babylonians took the southern kingdom into captivity and included members of all 12 tribes, by the way. And it's very likely to assume they commingle those captives, but we don't know that. But it's interesting, Isaiah, prophesying to Judah, refers to them as the house of Jacob, which are called by the name Israel. So you see from the scripture, from God's own voice, he's viewing them as integrated. Now, in the post-captivity terminology, this may surprise you, The word Jew and Israelite, a lot of people make it, well, Jew means Judah, and Israelite means Northern Kingdom, they argue. Well, that sounds colorful, but it's just not true. The terms are used interchangeably in the Holy Text. Ezra calls the returning remnant, this is after the captivity, they come back to the land. He calls them Jews eight times and Israel 40 times. He also speaks of all Israel in many, many places. Nehemiah uses the term Jew 11 times, Israel 22 times. And he also speaks of all Israel being back in the land in chapter 12. And so the remnant that's returned from Babylon is re- represented as the nation in Malachi 1 and elsewhere. So, and in the New Testament, by the way, our Lord is said to have offered himself to the nation, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And, uh, uh tribes other than Judah are mentioned specifically in the New Testament as represented in the land then in uh, Matthew 4 and uh, Luke 2, Acts 4, Philippians 3, and so on. In fact, the 12 tribes specifically are th- thus called in Acts 26, and, and uh, Yaakov's letter to the 12 tribes, we know as the book of James, opens up to the 12 tribes and so forth. And Anna, remember Anna, knew her tribal identity as being a tribe of Asher. That's from the north in Luke 2, and uh, on it goes. So Paul knew that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, A Jew and an Israelite, he calls himself in Romans 1. And so he's using those terms, in effect, uh, as synonyms. The New Testament uses the word Israel 75 times in 73 different verses, and the Jew 174 times in all through the uh, Acts and the Epistles and so on. And at the Feast of Passover, this is interesting, in Acts chapter 2, at the Feast of Pentecost, Peter cries in Acts 2 verse 14, Ye men of Judah... And he says again a couple of verses later, "Ye men of Israel," and uh, in, before the chapter's over, he says, "All the house of Israel." So the point I want to make: this idea that somehow there's ten tribes lost is a very popular myth, but it happens to fly in the face of of uh, the biblical record. So those of you that are serious about the scripture, I want to make you sensitive to that, and uh, at the same time. There's another reason I wanted to get into this. Uh, That's uh, By the way, in the end times, it's very emphasized they're going to be regathered as one. In Isaiah 36 and 37, the dry bones and so forth, at the same time you should recognize in Romans chapter 9, it emphasizes that uh, the physical descendants of Israel are not the ones to whom the promises were made. It's to the faithful subset of those. But another thing that derives from this, and I won't spend a lot of time on it tonight, but I want to alert you to the possibility. This idea of the lost ten tribes of Israel, strangely enough, becomes the basis for anti-Semitism. It's not obvious how you get to that link. I won't take the time now. Just recognize that when you start talking about the lost ten tribes and so forth, you'll discover, interestingly enough, it leads to various forms of British Israelism and other forms of anti-Semitic doctrines. And because it denies... The Jewish people, their proper place in the plan of God. And let's remember that Genesis 12, verse 3 has never been, repl- has been, ever been repealed. I'll bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee and so on. And of course, there is a, an event that is going to be used by God, the God of Abram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, to bring them together in the faith. And that's the invasion in the Middle East by Magog and his band in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And let's remember how germane this is. We should recognize every Christmas when we work, when we uh, uh, celebrate the Lord's birth in Luke chapter one verse thirty-two. Gabriel promises Mary that her son David will assume the throne of David, and the throne of David was over both houses of Israel. No lost tribes there. So, um, but there's another issue here I want to get into that is undergirding this whole historical. Area that were in the divided kingdom and following, and that's the cost of idolatry. We probably have noticed that uh, all the way through. We have uh, uh, noticed that certain kings they they allowed the worship of idols. And by the way, I've tried to emphasize it's not that they worshipped idols instead of God. They did, but but the, even worshiping idols in in addition to God didn't count. See, God wants to be he wants to be number one on a list of one. You see, not only number one on a list of whatever. And so, um, where did idolatry begin? It may surprise you, if you're going to study idolatry, where it first begins. And it's actually hidden behind a mistranslation. In Genesis 4, verse 26, at the end of chapter 4, it says, And to Seth, to him also was born a son. Remember, we had Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Eve has another son by the name of Seth. Seth has a son by the name of Enosh. And the way it reads in your English Bible, it says, Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. That sounds pretty good, except it's mistranslated. And many scholars don't realize this unless they've done a little bit of homework. In the Targum of Onkelos, which in the Hebrew world is considered the translation, it's an ancient one, what it actually is translated is they desisted from praying in the name of God, is what the Hebrew actually says. And uh, in the Targum of Jonathan, they surnamed their idols in the name of God. In the Hebrew, it happens in one of these, it's, un, it's a well known, but uh, a mis, uh, trans, uh, translation problem, but many casual readers of the Bible, you not know, don't dig behind this. Is that uh, this is where idolatry really began, from Enosh. There are people that have doctrines that say Seth were the good guys and the Cainites were the bad guys. Uh, no, it's not that simple. Cain mentioned, uh, 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 labeled all his children after, after El, the God, the God of the Bible. Yes, he killed his brother, but from that point on, he he walked a, a good line, apparently. But uh, Seth's son was bad news, and uh, Maimonides, who was the most venerated of the uh, the uh, uh, in the rabbinical community, um, his commentary on the Mishnah pub, published in uh, 1168 ascribes the origin of adultery to the days of Enosh, and so do all the other Akimchi, Rashi, and some of the other rabbinical and, and Jerome in the early church. And so this this fountain of idolatry gets its center in Babel under Nimrod which becomes Babylon and we'll all through the scripture you'll discover that all forms of idolatry can trace their roots back to Babylon and uh, that is going to ha- that's going to have a profound implication even in the end times you're going to want to understand that as we go for, uh forward. Now there's something about what 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 really is idolatry and uh Idolatry consists in revering the created thing rather than the creator. And uh, whether it's worship of the sun, the moon, stars, whatever, all these things are, in effect, become idioms in, in the place of demons. On the one hand, an idol is nothing. The scripture makes that very clear. Wood, stone, whatever. And yet the worship of them are also create supernatural entries for the demonic realm. And you need to understand that.
0: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on one 800 khouse one To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org.